Wonderful words, eh? His kingdom is forever. We saw that this morning. Oh, wonderful. Tonight, <coughs> tonight I'd like us to look at four lies that are being promoted. But first of all, we're going to look at what Scripture says about each one of those, and then we're going to test it. Then we're going to see if that lie is a lie or if there's truth to it. And this is really relevant because those of us who have family members who are in religion or all, just people you, you work with probably, and you're going to hear, th- you probably recognize some of these. And maybe you've heard people say these. And all across this nation this morning, and actually all around the world, these lies were probably promoted. And these four lies are extremely man-centered. They're man-centered. See, our focus is to get your eyes on Christ. Gospel preachers want you to look to Christ and look away from yourself. Because we have no hope in ourselves. I remember what Scott Richardson said, and I love this. He said, we look outside of ourselves and up to Christ. And that's so true for the believer. There was a time when, before we were saved, we looked inside into what we were doing. But now it's not like that. Now it's all what he's done. It's all what he's done. Now these four lies which religion promotes is number one. God loves everyone. He loves everyone. Now, God is a God of love, right? He's a God of love. But his love is so set upon his people. And his love is from everlasting. And we're going to look at that. The second lie is this. It's God's will for everyone to be saved. Well, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what the scriptures say, and then we're going to test that. The third lie we often hear is this, that Christ died for everyone, even those in hell. Because we know, you know, he died for those in heaven, of course, but even for those in hell. They just chose to reject. Well, look at that. And the last lie that you often hear is this. The Holy Spirit draws the saved and the condemned alike, but their ultimate destination or the ultimate where there be, the choice rests in them, not in him, in his doing, and that they can actually resist the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the first. And, and as I said as I said, these lies are, are they're promoted as truth. They're promoted as truth. And, and when you question them, when you question them with folks, well, they, right away, they're, they're come at you. But something you'll notice when they do that, I've, I've experienced it many times, is they don't have scripture. 
It's all based upon their opinion. And I've, I've talked to many people about this. And I was one who believed this way at one time. Until God showed me the gospel and showed me the truth. And those who are promoting these lies, they're adamant in protecting them. Adamant. And we're actually exposing them for what they are. A refuge of lies. They're a refuge of lies. Now God's people want to know, I, we don't want to know what the person's opinion is, do we? Because everyone has an opinion. But what we want is what saith the scriptures. What does the scriptures say? What do they say about these, these subjects? And as I said, the one thing that I've noticed in talking with these folks, and, and like I said, I was one too, that believed this way, is, is the lack of scripture support. Or, when they use Scripture, they tear it right out of context. Always read Scripture in context, if you can. But here, at First Baptist Church in Almont, we bow our knee to what saith the Scripture. You show me in Scripture, bow my knee to that. Because that's, this is the final authority right here. Not what someone's opinion is, but what does the scripture say? So we will ask a question first to see what the scripture says. And then we'll weigh each of these lies based upon what we've read in scripture. So, number one. What saith the scripture, right? What does the scripture say? And we'll just go over a few things here. The scripture says, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Psalm 11, verse 7. So, does God love everyone? Now we know that our God is a righteous God. He's righteous. And he loves righteousness. Psalm 11:7 says for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. And God himself is righteous. And he loves those who are righteous. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 9, verse 11. Now remember, we have no righteousness on our own that's acceptable to God, do we? We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We must be. We must be. In order to be accepted by God. And God is holy. Therefore, he is, his love is holy. And he's righteous, and therefore he hates unrighteousness or sin. Look at Romans chapter 9, passage that we're familiar with. Verses 11 to 14. 
for the children being not yet born. They haven't even been born. Neither haven't done any good or evil. So, there's no good or evil that they've done, right? So, election, we're going to see, is not based upon your doing. It's based upon the free grace of God in Christ. That the purpose of God, according to election, and that, that, that means to choose, might stand, not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works, but of him that calleth. And we saw this morning that God calls his sheep. We saw that in Sunday school. He calls his sheep, and he calls them by name. He calls them by name. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we then what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is it wrong for God to choose Jacob over Esau? God forbid. Here's a story of an old preacher that was in his study. And he had recently preached this passage of scripture. And his young son came in. And he said, Dad, I heard you preaching today. And you said in Scripture that that God hated Esau. I'm having a hard time with that. And the old preacher said, Son, look at it this way. How could God love Jacob? Could God love Jacob? Because they're both sinners, aren't they? It's mercy. The love of God is distinguishing grace. It's, it's, it's distinguishing love. It's set upon his people. Now, he is benevolent to everyone in the world. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust, doesn't it? He is benevolent. But his love is set upon his bride. Set upon his bride. When a man marries a woman, right? You choose your bride, don't you? Your love is set upon her. Christ is a bride given to him in eternity. And his love is set upon her. And that's all his sheep. All his sheep. And how long has he loved them? He's loved them with an everlasting love. In everlasting love. Chooses them in eternity. In Christ. Before the foundation of the world. Now everyone outside of Christ is under God's condemnation and wrath. But remember this. If you're saved. Like I've said before. It's all God. But if you're lost, it's all you. You're fully responsible for your sin. What does a God have to do to save a man? We looked at this before. Everything. What does he have to do for a man to be lost? Leave him alone. Just leave him alone. Oh, that God would move. Oh, that he would draw you. If you're not, if you if you don't know Christ, that He would move in your heart, 
See, we don't know who God's people are, who his elect are, who his lost sheep are. Therefore, we proclaim the love of Christ to save sinners to whom he chooses, to all. And he does the saving. He does the marrying. It's all his work. God's love is set upon those in Christ. He, Jacob was one of his elect. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And if God loves those in heaven equally to those in hell who suffer eternal damnation, then, then what does the love of God have to do with our salvation? Does God love everyone? Well, the answer we see from Scripture is no. His love is set upon his people. And as I said, he's benevolent to all, though, isn't he? He's benevolent to all. God loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Therefore, God's love is set upon his people in Christ, too. And that's the only place. Because remember how we saw that it wasn't based upon anything they had done? Oh, it's the mercy of God. So this first lie that God loves everyone fails to pass the test of Scripture. Now what does the Bible say about God's will and salvation? Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. What does the Bible say about God's will? Is it the will of God that all men would be saved? Ephesians 1 verse 5, and then if you would, your finger back in Romans. I should have kept you there, Romans chapter 9. But Ephesians 1 verse 5, what does the Bible say about God's will and salvation? Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. You can't argue with that. If you're saved, it's God's will. having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God will save whomever he pleases to save. Aren't you thankful, believer, that he had mercy on you? Now, does this hinder folks coming to Christ? Absolutely not. No. What did we look at today? Scripture declared to us today, this morning, that, that God's elect are a number that no man can number. We proclaim and he does the drawing. He does the saving. If, if you're saved, if you're even being drawn to Christ, it's, it's according to the pleasure of his goodwill. 
He can give salvation to whomever he is pleased to give it to. Romans 9. Today we looked at him as a king. Sovereign king this morning. Romans chapter 9 says this. Verse 15. And this is so plain. Now remember, we're saved by the mercy of God in Christ, aren't we? That's, that's how we're saved. Look, at, look what he declares in Romans 9.15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth. It's not, it's not your will. Because your will's not willing. But to be made willing, then you're going to run. But initially, when we come into this world, dead in trespasses and sins, we don't want to come to God. Dead in trespasses and sins. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then, look at it. It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. So it's not by your will, and it's not by your works. There's the two of them covered right there. But of God that showeth mercy. If you're ever saved, God has shown you mercy. Mercy. Look what it says in verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up. Pharaoh was raised up by God. That I might show my power in thee. Remember, he's king. We saw that this morning. He is a sovereign king. And I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And again in verse 18, Therefore he hath, he hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. God's distinguishing grace. It's his will to save his people. If it was his will for everyone to be saved, everyone would be saved. And, and I remember when I was in believing these things, my whole perspective of who God was was warped. I thought he was at my whim. I thought that he was waiting for me to run to him. And I used to tell people that, oh, I, uh, you know, I used to say God cast a vote for you and the devil cast a vote for you. Now it's up to you. Well, what a lie. But that's, I, that's what I, that's, I didn't know anything else. I've been taught that by man, not by God. But now, when, when we witness to someone or, or even preaching the gospel, it's all in God's hands. It's all according to his will. In his verse, this is why we can talk to family members or if, if the Lord opens the door, if the Lord gives us utterance, sister, like you were saying today, and that's what we pray. Lord, please just open up doors with our family if it's your will. Please. Please. And then what do we do? Remember the demoniac. We tell them the great things the Lord has done for us. God has had mercy on me in Christ. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But he's had mercy on me. And he can, if he wills, he'll have mercy on you. Oh, what a great God. 
So here before us in those, the text in Romans, we see before us God's free and sovereign grace explained right before us there. It's, it's his, he has the freedom to save whomever he will. There's only one real will supreme. And that's God's will. It's his will. He has mercy on whomever he pleases. And what do we say? We say amen. Amen. Think of this. He saves those who cannot save themselves. He saves those who cannot save themselves. In verse 16, verse 16 absolutely destroys free will, works-based religion. It just destroys it. The text says, not of him that willeth. Well, there goes free will. Not of him that runneth. There goes works. But of God who showeth mercy, there's the heart of it. Free grace. Free grace. Free grace. And the merit is torn away. Right? No merit. I like what Brother James said. No merit, no merit, no merit. I love that. He preached that to me all the time. That's so true. No merit. Not at all. Undeserving. Oh, but God has mercy. He has mercy. Shows a mercy. Mercy to sinners. Mercy to those who don't deserve it. Mercy. Mercy. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Verse 21 to 23. So the question is, is it God's will that all should be saved? Well, John 5, 21. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the, quicken, the Son quickeneth whom he will. Whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Christ has all power and authority. We saw this morning, he's a king. He's got all the authority and power to save whomever he wills. And all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Well, he that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which has sent him. There was a time when I didn't honor the Son. But God had mercy on me. Now I love Him. Now I praise Him. Why? Because He's had mercy on me. Is it not so with you who believe? Just remember where you were. Never forget the rock you were hewn from. Never forget where the Lord, the pit the Lord dragged us out of. Never forget that. Never forget that he had mercy on you if you're one of his. 
And he didn't pass you by. So the second lie that religions claim is that it's God's will for all to be saved. But we see from scripture that God saves whom he wills. Whom he wills. And what does he do? Those he saves, he saves his people from their sins. He does. Successful. It's not a question of maybe. He does. So the second lie that God's will for all to be saved does not, it fails again to pass the test of Scripture. What does the Scripture say about the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross? For whom did Christ die on the cross? Now religion tells you that he died for all men. But, what did we, we believe what saith the scripture. Right? That's what we want. We don't want man's opinion. We want to know what the scripture says. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 10. And then also put your finger in uh, Titus chapter 2. So the religion ex- exclaims that, that God died for all men. What was the purpose of our beloved Savior dying on the cross? What saith the scripture? John 10, verse 11. If this is so plain. But unless God gives you eyes to see, you won't see it. I know, I used to read scripture before the Lord saved me, and I didn't even... Then he saves you, and it's, wow. <laughs> You start to see things you didn't see before. (laughs) John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And this is our master speaking. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Remember, he's sinless, spotless. The shepherd gives his life for sinners. For the sheep. It doesn't say everyone but he does give his life for the sheep. And in Titus chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ gives his life for his sheep, his elect. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He really gave himself. The sinless one gave himself for us, for for his elect, for his bride, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a particular people. Purify. Redeem us from some iniquity? All iniquity. (laughs) All your trespasses and sins are forgiven in Christ. And purify unto himself a particular people zealous of good works. We desire to see people come to Christ. 
We desire to be in church to hear the gospel preached. We desire to be with one another. We love our Savior and we love to be with His people. So who did Christ give Himself for? His sheep. His elect. And why did He give Himself for His sheep? That He might redeem us. Oh. We couldn't redeem ourselves, could we? That he might redeem us from all iniquity. And this is why we say, you know, a lot of folks, they, they say, well, you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how black my sin is. Oh, you don't know what I've said. Well, I know how black my sin is. And I know the things that I'm ashamed of. God saved me. He saved me from all my sin. All the iniquity. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And everyone in here who's believed could say the same thing. You know what your sin is. You know what you've done. And you know what, you know what God saved you from. And don't you praise his mighty name. Don't you give thanks for for knowing that he's forgiven us for all our trespasses and sins. And this is why we say, sinner friend, come, come, come to the fountain. Come to him who can wash you clean because he's done it for us. He's cleansed us from all our iniquity and sin. Oh, he's a marvelous Savior. And he gave his life for his people. Who gave himself for our sins, Galatians 1.4 says. Who gave himself for our sins. He's the sinless one. Pure, spotless lamb of God. The perfect lamb. All those types and shadows in the Old Testament, right there. Who gave himself for our sins. Why? That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God, our Father. Oh. The sinless one becomes the sin bearer. The spotless, perfect Lamb of God dies in the place of sinners. And think of this. That when the Lord Jesus Christ died on that cross, he died, and remember we saw today, an innumerable amount of people are God's people, right? He died on that cross for every single one of them. So, well, he was redeeming my soul on Calvary's tree. Brother John, he's redeeming you. He redeemed his people from their sins. And he did it. And he died for his sheep. Didn't die for everyone, but for those he died for, he redeemed them. He redeemed them. Isaiah says this in verse 7 of chapter 50. For the Lord God will help me Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. 
And I know that I shall not be ashamed. The Lord Jesus Christ set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. Okay? Now that's old, older language. Flint. He set his face like a flint. To set one's face like a flint means to be adamant as stone. I must redeem my people from their sins. He set his face like a flint to the cross. I must. He must redeem his people from their sins. It means to be firm and undaunted. Constant and unmoved. Unmoved even by the words and blows of men. And our Savior did that, didn't he? They beat him to a pulp. I must redeem my people from their sins. I must. What he had purposed to do, he must accomplish. He must. So the third lie that religion promotes is that Christ died for everyone, even those in heaven and those in hell. Well, we've just seen from Scripture, it fails to pass the test. It fails to pass the test. Because Christ did die, but he died for his sheep. He has redeemed all his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is a successful Savior. Now, if he, if he died for those in hell as well as those in heaven, then he wouldn't really be successful, would he? I remember an old grace preacher saying that. Then he's failed. But no, no. Our Savior has redeemed all his people. Every single one of them. Now the last point I'd like to look at is what does the Bible say about the work of the Holy Spirit in redemption? Are sinners dead as the Bible claims? Dead spiritually when they come into this world? Turn with me if you would to Ephesians chapter 2. Are sinners in the Bible dead or, or are they just mostly dead? as religion likes to proclaim? Or are they really dead? And we know when someone's dead, they can't do anything. They have no ability, do they? I love this portion of Scripture. Because it shows us who's in control. It shows us where we were. And I think verse 4 is a mountaintop Scripture. It is for me. Ephesians chapter 2. And remember chapter 1, he's explained redemption in Christ. It's just beautiful. Look at this chapter though. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you, and we know he's talking to the, the believers at Ephesus. And you, hath he quickened. Beloved, you must be born again. You must be. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, the Greek word for dead in verse 1, I looked it up, it means a corpse. 
You were a corpse spiritually. I was a corpse spiritually. Dead. No ability. But what does religion say? Well, okay, walk that aisle, pray the prayer. It's your choice, right? But a corpse can't make a choice. And the same word is used in verse 5. We'll see that. So you who are dead in trespasses and sins, where in times past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So you could not tell one of God's elect before they're saved from, from anyone else. That's why we preach to everyone. Eh? That's why we proclaim the gospel. But you couldn't tell. I remember how I was. I had no thoughts of God. I had no cares of God before the Lord saved me. I didn't even think hardly, except when I was in trouble. And of course, I'd cry out then. Oh, God had mercy on me, but that's just grace before grace, provenient grace, grace going before grace. Where in times past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversations in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You couldn't tell the difference. But look at verse 4. Oh, but God, who is rich in mercy, but God. In every believer's life, there's a time, but God. But God, who is, he just doesn't have mercy. He's rich, beloved, in mercy. Rich in mercy. For his great love, there's God's distinguishing love, right? Wherewith he loved us. And we know from chapter 1, he's loved us. You know, he chose us in eternity. His love was set upon us then. Even, now now again, verse 5, just in case. I like to say, just in case we didn't get it in verse 1. But verse 5, even when we were dead, a corpse, spiritually corpse, in sins, hath quickened us together. Again, you, you must be born again. The quickening is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit hath quickened us together with Christ. And look at this. By grace ye are saved. There's no other, no other way. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Every believer is a trophy of the grace of God in Christ. Every believer. Trophies of God's grace. Oh. We must be made alive by the Spirit of God. He must regenerate us. A question I've asked many people. What comes first? Faith or regeneration? And everyone, you know, most of the folks in religion, they answer right away. Faith. Nope. Must be born again. Regeneration. You never flee to Christ unless you're regenerated. Oh. Oh. Now, unless we're made alive by the Spirit of God, we'll remain dead in our trespasses and sins, won't we? In our prayers, oh. Oh, that God the Holy Spirit would regenerate you, that He'd give you life. 
give you life. That you flee to Christ. Because I know if he gives you life, you're going to flee to Christ. You're going to flee to Christ. Oh, that he'd make you willing. How are we saved? The Holy Spirit regenerates us and we run to Christ. And think of this, the whole trinity is in action. The whole trinity is in action in the salvation of a sinner. God chooses us in eternity. Gives us to Christ, right? Christ redeems his people on the cross. And the Holy Spirit brings us to Christ, regenerates us, and draws us to Christ. The whole trinity is in action. It's beautiful. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. So how are we saved? All oh, by the regenerating power of God, right? You must be born again. Now, who saves us? Who saves us? God saves us. You can't be saved by your own doing. He must save you. Titus chapter 3. Verses 4 to 7. Look at this. This is beautiful. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. There goes works-based religion. Gone. Right there. But according to his mercy, he saved us. That's why I always like to say, if you're ever saved, it's, it's the mercy of God in Christ. By the washing, how? By the washing of regeneration. Again, you must be born again. Must be. And renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us. Brother Matt mentioned that scripture about being pressed down, overflowing. Look at this. Which he shed on us abundantly through Christ Jesus. Abundantly. Abundantly he shed it upon us. Through Christ Jesus our Savior. All spiritual blessings for the believer are in Christ. You're abundantly. <laughs> Shed on us abundantly. That being justified by his grace. Justified by his grace, not by our own doing. Again, see how this destroys works-based religion? We should be made, made heirs. You don't make yourself an heir. You're made heir. You're made an heir. Made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the fourth lie which religion promotes fails when compared to Scripture. And that is the Holy Spirit draws the saved and condemned alike, but man has the ultimate choice to resist him by accepting or rejecting Christ. Out the door it goes. Right? Doesn't pass what Scripture says. But we bow our knee to what Scripture says, don't we? We bow our knee to what he says, or what the, what the word says. And we looked at scripture earlier, and it said, it's not man's will which saves us, or our works, but it's God who shows mercy. Let us just remember that this week. Let us just think on that. That if we're saved, and remember, he gives us eternal life. We saw that this morning, right? You can't mess it up. The 
or it's not eternal. If God saves a person, you keep them. They're his. They're his. But let us think on this. That God had mercy on us in Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to Jude. I told you that I like to go to the scripture a lot to finish sermons, but I really do. This, this is something that can, if we think on this, boy, it, 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 I find great comfort here. This is somewhere where I go to find great comfort. Look at this in Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. To keep you from falling. If it was up to us, we'd fall a thousand times. Just going from the bed to the breakfast table. Able. He's able to keep you from falling. And to present you, where? Presents us before his throne, right? Presents you faultless. Faultless. Think of a brethren who have went home to glory. They're in his presence, faultless. Faultless. We who struggle with sin every day, one day, they present us faultless. Faultless. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Before the presence of his glory, and I love this, with exceeding joy. It brings him great joy. But exceeding joy. And of course, our response is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. He gets it all. Gets gets to give him all the glory. Give him all the praise. So we've seen that these four lives which are promoted... Do not pass the test of Scripture. Do not pass the test of Scripture.